Well, greetings, greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and this is an open and shut episode with Gary Lipman. Now, Gary has written an interesting novel, and this is a little bit different than than, than sort of what we normally uh, feature on the show. Gary's book is uh, entirely fiction, and it is crime fiction for sure. It's dark comedy, and uh, but it is a little bit different than a lot of the crime fiction that we feature here, or even the true crime, in that it does have an historical reference to it, and I'll let him explain the rest. Uh, Before we get to Gary, though, I do want to tell you that uh, Wrong Place, Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it, uh, at the darker and grittier end of the spectrum. And uh, that's what they like, that's what they publish, and that's what you can find at their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's down and out, all spelled out. Down and Out Books, take the journey with us. Now, speaking of journey, we're going to uh, take one back into the late 1960s. He, he can certainly explain it far better than I can. So let's just dive right in and talk to Gary Lipman. Well, hey, Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. Good to be here. Uh, so as I was doing just a wee bit of research, I saw that uh, you have a law degree. Yes, I do. I'm not using it at the moment, but I've worked for many years at something called the Innocence Project, which is a not-for-profit law institution based in New York City, though they've spread all over the place now, in which we use DNA evidence to get exonerated clients who we believe are innocent of really bad crimes, usually murder, rape. So uh, it's noble work, and I did that for a long time. Well, it's interesting to me that with that uh, background, I think people in the fiction realm would find that to be uh, uh, an interesting premise. But your book uh, is actually about something else entirely. Yeah, my book has nothing to do with the Innocence Project, and there's not a whole lot of innocence with a small eye in the book. My book's about a guy who's, it's called uh, Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate. And it is about Sharon Tate to a great extent, the tragic, um, tragically murdered young gorgeous actress in the late 60s who was married to the director Roman Polanski and who was murdered by the minions of Charles Manson, a very big, big, big part of uh, American cultural and criminal history, especially big last year, which was both the 50th anniversary of that murder and also um, commemorating the 50th anniversary was the Quentin Tarantino movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which just happened to coincide with the publication of my own book on a similar, on the, on that theme. I saw that movie. Um, were you a fan? For the most part, I was. I thought it was really entertaining. I thought um, there were, I had a lot of problems with it. And I'm regularly a Quentin Tarantino fan. I was a bit disappointed by it. I was moved by the ending, though, which I won't spoil for any mm-hmm. listeners who haven't seen it. But I did think the ending which had a real twist, was touching. But my book is is very different than the Tarantino film. It's about a guy who, in uh, the early 2000s, has grown up completely obsessed with Sharon Tate, a total fanboy, but um, taking fanboy to a real extreme because he's full-on in love with Sharon Tate, sexually, emotionally, the works. And the book, uh, the power of the book, comes from his uh, moving out to L.A., and staying in a hotel where Sharon Tate had stayed. And uh, he's working on a book about her, which I excerpt throughout my book, 
very much, uh, you know, excerpts about her life from his book, true life stuff about her. And while there, he has a misfortune to run into a group of people who are just as obsessed with Charles Manson as he is obsessed with Sharon Tate. So it's obviously a bad mix and uh, dark hilarity ensues. Yeah, that would be almost as bad as having an Elvis and a Beatles convention at the same hotel. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. You, you'd mentioned before we got started that uh, you had some uh, uh, some kind of a personal connection to this material. Yeah, when I was, and this is the one scene, I do have this one small or these few little connections to Sharon Tate myself. I discovered that she was murdered on my birthday and she was, uh, she had lived in an apartment quite across the street from mine in New York City at one point in her life. I've met a few people who've known her over the years. I've met these people who um, were all very fond of her, spoke highly of her. But the real connection is one that I dramatize in my novel and sort of give like a sort of, um, a sort of gift to my protagonist who otherwise is nothing like me but he does share with me this sort of origin story. Um, when I was about 10 or 11 years old, I was watching a um, bad TV movie rerun uh, late at night. I stayed up late and uh, my mother was asleep. I was just watching on my own. It was a really bad Dean Martin movie from the late 60s called The Wrecking Crew, a sort of James Bond spoof. And as I watched it, I became really turned on by the lead actress, who was not only gorgeous, but who was charming uh, and kind of doing light comedy in a very self-deprecating role. And it was one of the first times that I really sparked to a, a woman or a girl or anybody of the opposite sex. I really dug her and was kind of falling in puppy love with her. So when the credits rolled at the end of the movie on my TV screen, I looked for her name to say, who is she, you know? And when her name appeared and it was Sharon Tate, I felt horrified because I'd already been looking at the newly published book, Helter Skelter, which was written all about the Manson murders. Mm -hmm. So I knew who Sharon Tate was. And I was horrified that this woman I'd seen on my TV who I'd fallen in love with had was a murder victim. And at that time, I think I was about 11. So that would have been 1974 right around when Helter Skelter came out. So she'd only been dead five years, and those murders were as big then as they are now, bigger even, because they were fresh in the public's mind. So I felt like years later, thinking about it, that that was a really powerful, sort of poetic moment where I turn on to this woman, and moments later, minutes later, discover that she had been murdered a few years before. So it was sort of like Eros and Thanatos collapsed together. And I always remembered that. I didn't personally become obsessed with Sharon Tate after that. But I always remembered um, that sort of powerful moment. And that was sort of the seed for my book. You know, I thought, what if I had not, you know, moved on to digging Angie Dickinson and Raquel Welch and other TV queens and movie queens of the time who I got more into as a pubescent kid? Uh, but what if I'd become fixated, I asked myself, on Sharon Tate? And then what would that be like to just grow up in such a um, dramatically limited way where 
the only way you could get turned on by women is if they kind of look like Sharon Tate, you know? So I really went to town creatively uh, making up this guy and thinking up this guy who is so limited that way, sexually, emotionally, et cetera. And then my next thought was, well, what would the story be? And I decided, you know, having him run into someone who's also Gaga, but about Manson, you got creative tension there, right? And dramatic tension. And then I just made the rest of it up. And and, um, and I knew the ending of the book, which I won't spoil, but the, the, I know some creative uh, fiction writers make it up as they go along. I'm not one of them. I need to know where the story is heading. So I outlined, I threw out the outline, you know, when I needed to or modified it. But I was always driving toward the ending, which uh, I had in mind from the very beginning. And fortunately, it seemed to work. And so uh, I didn't change it. I just kept driving in the writing toward that ending. Yeah, it's a frequent conversation amongst writers when you get to inside baseball about whether you're a plotter or a pantser. Uh, For those who don't know what I mean, whether you outline as, as you did or whether you write by the seat of your pants. And it kind of became a moot point for me. Uh, first, when I started collaborating on a number of novels, you, you just can't pants it when you're writing with another author. And then later yeah. on, uh, somebody said to me, yeah, we're all outliners. We all outline. So-called pantsers, their first draft is just their outline. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess you're out- outlining in real time is what you're doing there. So now I don't even worry about the distinction. <laughs> yeah, um, I think one thing that's really important is with the first draft, um, I had a, a mentor, not really a writing mentor, but more a life mentor, a fabulous writer who, if your listeners don't know his work, he's not exactly a crime writer, although he's definitely got a lot of criminal activity, a writer named Harry Cruz, Southern kind of a Southern Gothic writer, tough guy, kind of like Hemingway on acid in the swamps of Georgia. That's how I would describe his writing. And I I was friendly with Harry. Uh, He died about eight years ago. And I asked him once, you know, I told him I was having trouble with a first draft of something else, not my Sharon Tate novel. And I said, um, you know, I don't know if I should keep going or just give it up. And he said in his deep fried Southern accent, He said, son, the middle of a thing is no place to judge it from. So you got to just, when you're in the middle of the first draft, you drive through to the end. Because only once you've got it down on paper and you write the end to the first draft, can you look back and know if it's worth continuing with or what it's about and whether you should, you know, change this or that. So his point was, when you're on a first draft, go through to the end. So if you're a pantser, I love that term, keep going, you know, and I've always remembered those words of this guy, Harry Cruz, whether it's an outline or a first draft, keep going till you get it down on paper and then judge. It's good advice. It's good advice. Um, I I have uh, haven't read your book yet. And so for those who haven't, if you read the description, especially the detailed synopsis, which has some spoilers in it, so I won't share anything, but it describes like it's got a lot of comedy in it, or at least some darker comedy. Um, Is that how it's written or is it written purely dramatically? No, I definitely, to me, I consider it a sort of black or dark comedy. Mm -hmm. I was really inspired. If there's one work 
that sort of evokes the tone I was going for. It's a Roman, it's a film, and it's a Roman Polanski film called The Ten, which he made probably about six or seven years after Sharon Tate, uh, maybe seven years after her murder. And um, it's, it's very creepy and dark, but it's really kind of absurdist. And that's sort of what I was going for because um, uh, while I, as I mentioned, I have excerpts from my protagonist's book about Sharon Tate, which are not absurd or comic at all. They're meant to be kind of poignant. I did a lot of research into the Sharon Tate's short life and um, those excerpts really lay out who she was to the best I could capture it and learn about her and then write about her. So they lay out who she was and what, what she was about. So I wanted to have that running through it, that serious thread mm-hmm. and, and, and very meaningful thread about her life and work. But um, the dark comedy parts came from just the basic absurdity of my character who... Right. Uh, you know, that's no worshiping a dead movie star in a full way, you know, where your whole life is organized around her is no way to live. And, you know, it kind of is in the vein of people who think they're Jesus mm-hmm. or people who um, think that uh, the red Chinese are chlorinating or, or fluoridizing our water supply. You know, anybody who has a really wacky idea that they're totally convinced of and lives by in my opinion, is probably not living a fulfilled life and living a kind of absurd life. So a lot of the comedy comes from this guy's misadventures in being so uh, kooky. And in a kooky situation. Uh, So uh, the book is out now. Published late last year. It's uh, any source online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I prefer Barnes & Noble myself because they actually are real bookstores, right? Where they actually have brick and mortar stores that I support. It's in a lot of independent bookstores. It can be ordered online just about anywhere. And um, and uh, but I always prefer people buy it in a brick and mortar bookstore or order it from your local brick and mortar bookstores because we need to support those. And where can people find you online? I'm at Gary Lipman Official. That's G A R Y L I double P M A N Official. Com. That's my website. You could find on there a lot of my journalism as well. I write a lot about, I write a lot of features and interviews with other artists, musicians, um, and writers. I think it's a scenario that you've created, a premise that you've created that is really ripe for some dark comedy. Uh, so I think people will enjoy it. Before I let you go, though, I have to ask you one more question. Uh, you mentioned the uh, uh, Tarantino film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, how do you think Margot Robbie did in portraying Sharon Tate in that film, given that obviously she was following Tarantino's direction, but how did she perform as an actress, right. do you think? I think she, uh, she, she certainly, when I first read about her casting, I thought perfect because she, you know, has two things, the beauty of Sharon Tate, you know, you can't help, but, um, see the difference you know, unless he hired someone who is an absolute impersonator, you know, and looked exactly like Sharon Tate. And it's hard to find someone who was that beautiful. Uh, so I, I could see the difference. But I think Margot Robbie has a lot of the light comedy chops and the, the sweetness and the charm that Sharon Tate had. And the movie that I first saw 
that really woke me up to Sharon Tate, the one I mentioned turning me on when I was a kid, was this Dean Martin movie called The Wrecking Crew. And interestingly, that's the film for those mm-hmm. of you listeners who see the Tarantino movie. That's the exact film that Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate is watching in the movie theater in Westwood in L.A., in the Tarantino film, watching herself on screen. I thought that was an enchanting scene, was a great idea. I wish Tarantino had had done more with the Sharon Tate character, you know? She was really only in a few scenes, didn't have a lot of lines. I think there are great films to be made about her um, and about her life. Certainly my book, as I said, there's a lot about her, so anybody who reads it will, will not only learn about my crazy protagonist and his misadventures, but a lot about her because uh, she was a really great person, I think. She was truly, aside from talented in a light comedy way, I don't think she would have won Oscars for wrenching portrayals of of you know Lady Macbeth or Ophelia in Hamlet. Um, I think she was a really talented at, at the role of America's sweetheart in the vein of Julia Roberts or Meg Ryan or even Margot Robbie, though Margot Robbie's not American. I think she would have been great and had a wonderful career if she'd been allowed to live out her life and not been so tragically killed. And um, I think she was a really good person too. Everything I learned about her, she was extremely sweet, sweet, kind and caring person which just makes the tragedy of her early death that much more wrenching. Well, the book is Set the Controls for the Heart of Sharon Tate. Uh, it is a novel by Gary Lipman. And, and uh, Gary, I wanted to tell you, thanks for coming on the show. It's been my pleasure, Frank. Thanks for having me. And good luck with the great podcast. All right, folks, uh, there you go. Uh, Gary uh, explained himself pretty well there. I think you have a pretty good idea what uh, his Sharon Tate novel is about. Uh, our next episode will be uh, also a little bit different than usual. Uh, it will feature James Swallow, who I think you could pretty much say is the uh, one of the most famous writers I never knew about till I till I met him. <laughs> and so uh, you'll see what I mean when you uh, listen to the episode. But the guy has written an enviable amount uh, and got to play in a lot of IP sandboxes um, that most uh, authors, uh, this one included. Uh, would be envious of. So we will talk to James uh, next week. Uh, the only news for you uh, in the Frank Zafiro camp this week uh, is that uh, we are doing cover reveals for season three of A Grifter's Song. And so you will see uh, each day uh, one of the six covers, uh, Monday through Saturday, beginning with Matt Phillips' The Rule of Thirds, uh, which is episode 13. Uh, awesome covers done by Zach McCain, uh, who's who's done all the covers for this series. Uh, you can see those on my social media platforms on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and you can check out the author's uh, social media as well. And it'll be going up uh, via blog and, and on my website as well. Uh, but each day we're going to we're going to drop one of those. If you're wondering what a grifter song is, it is a novella anthology series featuring the same two uh, characters, Sam and Rachel, who are grifters. They are deeply in love with each other and the rest of the world can, can probably just, uh, go straight to hell for all they care because it's all about them. I wrote the first episode, the concrete smile a couple of years ago, and then, uh, every, uh, other episode, 
uh, is written by a different author and they write it in a different setting and they can write it from a different perspective. And each episode has a self-contained con that uh, may or may not work, but it uh, will be resolved and uh, then uh, moves on with a different uh, setting and a different author and a different POV and, and a different location, a uh, different con. And this uh, goes on uh, for uh, six episodes in each season. And like I said, we're coming up on season three. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can, you can buy these individually or you can subscribe. If you subscribe to the season, you get a price break that, uh, basically equals one episode for free. Um, you get the episodes, uh, about a week early, maybe a little more, uh, than the general public. Uh, and you also get a subscriber only bonus episode. And when I say subscriber only, I mean that these episodes are not available anywhere else, uh, for anyone else. I've written both of the subscriber-only episodes for uh, seasons one and two, and I'll be doing a season three as well. Uh, and they're not throwaways. They are designed to tie into the season and into the meta arc uh, of the series. Uh, so check out those uh, covers as they drop, and check out the authors, uh, because uh, all of them have written uh, more than just uh, their Grifter Song episode. All right, that's what's going on in my world. I'd like to say thanks to uh, Gary Lipman for coming on the show, uh, to Down and Out Books for being a great sponsor, uh, and of course to you for coming on this ride. Uh, hope you check out Gary's work and uh, Grifter's Song and all the authors who contribute to that. And uh, most of all, uh, keep listening to this podcast because I got some, uh, uh, some more great guests coming down the pike. James Swallow next week. Until then, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.